Hey everybody, it's Rob. You are about to hear our amazing interview with Kent Meyer, a retired EMT. Just as a warning, there will be some graphic content involving some of Kent's experiences as an EMT. If you wish to skip any of that, please go to about the 16 minute mark. Uh, and if you need support at any point in time, please contact the crisis hotline at 988 where somebody can help. Thanks. Welcome everybody into the Please Stay Inside podcast. My name is Rob. This is episode number 15. We are joined today by Kent Meyer. He is a 14-year paramedic in the creator of Project Hope EMS, a group for first responders uh, who need some support after what they have gone through as first responders um, looking to address the PTSD uh, issue among the first responder community. Kent, welcome on. Well, thank you. I'm I'm really glad to be here. <laughs> it is a real pleasure to get to have you, Kent. Um, very much looking forward to to hearing about the project today. Uh, so, first and foremost, tell us a little bit about you. Well, I was a paramedic for 14 years, um, and then I uh, developed PTSD, and now I work in uh, behavioral health as a behavioral health tech. And uh, I teach uh, groups and classes and do one-on-ones. And um, so I, I stay very busy with my three boys and my wife and our two dogs. And and uh, that's basically me in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would certainly bet that keeps you busy. I mean, uh, a family and then it sounds like, I mean, you've gone straight from being a first responder for so long, straight into behavioral health tech. I mean, that's amazing. Yes. Yes, I did. Wow. Wow. I, I, so, I mean, I would love to, I guess, talk about that transition and, and what that, I, what that was like for you. Um, but I also want to talk about the, you know, being a paramedic, everything I'm kind of trying to figure out where to start. Well, I mean, let's kind of take it from, from the beginning. What is it that I guess got you into wanting to be a paramedic? Well, I was in the Navy. I retired from the Navy. And when I got out, we moved back to my ex-wife's hometown and I didn't know anybody. So I joined the fire hall for the social aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And they said, uh, would you go to EMT school if we pay for it? And I said, sure. And the first day of school, they said, who here is going to make this a career? And I was like, oh, people do that. Mm-hmm. So um, I was like, well, I don't know if I'd be able to handle it. So I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just go until I can't. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got started. And I loved it. Uh, it was, uh, it was, so I was a mechanic in the Navy on submarines. So it was quite the role switch. Yeah. 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 Wow. What was that role switch like? I mean, going from working on submarines to, to EMS. It was exciting because it was a uh, an adrenaline rush on the submarines with all the uh, real uh, emergencies we had and stuff. And, and then I found that again in EMS mm-hmm. and, um, and I had a lot of good uh, mentors and uh, that helped me along the way and, and uh, molded me, so to speak. And, mm-hmm. but it just came a, it came to a time where it was uh, too much mm-hmm. because they don't teach you coping skills. Mm-hmm. in EMT school or paramedic school or the fire academy or uh, the police academy there, you know, they, they, I still don't think they do there. You know, there's a shift going on mm-hmm. where they're talking about resiliency and things like that. And, and uh, you know, it was funny because the uh, class uh, there was like three slides for mental health care. Wow. And I remember they said, so you may see something that bothers you and you may need to talk to someone and, uh, but you just need to eat right, take vacations and get plenty of sleep, which as an EMS person, you never eat right. You never get good sleep and you rarely have time for vacation. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was kind of funny. Right. It it seems kind of counter counterintuitive for, I mean, how busy you are (laughs) as an EMT. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, given that all of that, that just like those three slides were dedicated to, to the profession, I mean, what were you kind of expecting going into the EMT role? You know, I really didn't know. Uh, I remember the first call I went on was a 
very elderly woman who coded mm. and we and it was the first person I did CPR on and of course she didn't make it and I was like I don't feel anything should I be feeling something how should I feel and and then you learn to put that aside <coughs> excuse me I'm getting over COVID um all good I uh so what I did for a coping skill, which turned out to be not a good coping skill, was I looked at the person as a job. Mm. Like, this is broken. Let's do this. They need fluid. Let's do that. This is going on. Let's do that. I didn't look at them as a person. I was, uh, you know, empathetic and, and everything. But mm. uh, And then you drop them off, and that's over. And you put it in the back of your head, and it's done with. Well. It, it, you can only store so much in the back of your head before it like makes its way out. Mm. And I suppose it's different for everybody because not everybody gets PTSD. Sure. And, and I know resiliency is a big part of it. Um, some people naturally have more resiliency than others mm. just by things they've been through in life when they were younger and, and, you know, when I heard about resiliency, I was like, what the heck is resiliency? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so, but anyways, uh, yeah, it was uh, a, a poor coping skill. Mm. Yeah. Did, did you find that that developed naturally or was that something that you consciously had to, had to try to do? It was more natural than anything. And uh Pretty much everybody, I don't want to say everybody, but it, sure. it seems like most of EMS workers that I worked with would approach the same way. You know, it's funny, the calls that bother you are not the ones that are real gory or uh, things like that. For one, you know, we see all, I don't watch horror movies anymore because I don't like the idea of entertaining myself with things that I actually seen, mm. but Hollywood makes it look recognizable mm. for entertainment value in real life. The gory stuff, it, it don't look, it doesn't look recognizable. It's not real. Mm. What really gets to you is what pulls on your heartstrings. Like when you work on a kid who's the same age as your ten your teenager, or when all of a sudden you're meeting the family and they're telling you all about that person, uh, or you know they're just it, it's the heartstring things. Like I had a four year old little girl uh, who told me about how her dad was beating up her mom and was looking for her and her brother to kill them you know, it, it just pure innocence. And it's like, you can't forget stuff like that. You can't put that in the back of your head. So in other first responders I talked to, it's the same thing is what tugs on their heartstrings. Uh, you know, they, they personalized it, mm. you know, instead of keeping it a job. Cause you can't always do that. Right. You know, um, it's just not, possible but so and you never know what you're going to relate to mm -hmm. hmm. and so it sounds like it's just those it's those moments that just really kind of hit you in the moment yeah mm. how does that i guess feel feel different from the compartmentalization because i mean I, I know you said that you know you kind of unconsciously sometimes you put it in a box and you say i'll you know i'll get to this later and then these other times it's a bit harder to to do that i wonder you know as you're growing into this profession and you're beginning to approach things and i you know, imagine you know you compartmentalize a couple of times what's it like that time when it doesn't so easily go into that box um it stays in the front of your brain mm. or your head or what your mind uh you know uh, the call that uh pushed me over the edge was uh, a burn patient Mm. And, um, you know, statistically, mathematically, you can tell if a person is going to die 
by how much percentage of burns and degree of burns they have on their body. Mm-hmm. And this lady was covered head to toe in burns. And she was still talking to us, you know, and she was, and she was, you know, she was begging me to help her. And, uh, you know, I never had that before to have a patient knowing that they're going to die, mm. but they're still alive talking to you. And because, and you know, there's no hope, but you know, even with a heart attack, you're like, well, we might get them back. You got hope. Mm. But this was the first time that it's like, she's not going to make it. And I struggled with it because, and I'm going to try not to cry. It's all good. <laughs> I, I struggled with it because I knew, I knew she was going to die. And I told her that I'm going to give you uh, medications to put you to sleep and give you pain medications, take the pain away. I'm going to breathe for you. Uh, to make you more comfortable. But I didn't tell her she was never going to wake up again. Mm. And her husband, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. He's standing right outside the ambulance. Mm. I didn't give him a chance to say goodbye. Mm. And uh, it, we transported her to the hospital, which was close by. A helicopter was waiting to take her to a burn center. And I was just numb. And then I went to the back of the ambulance to start cleaning up. And the bottoms of her feet uh, were laying on the floor. And I just lost it. And it wouldn't go away. I mean, I can, to this day, it's so vivid in... I can even feel my lungs stinging from the the smoke and I can feel the sweat pouring off my forehead because we shut the air conditioner off the back of the unit. I, I just can remember every detail. Mm. And uh but I uh you think you moved past things, mm-hmm. think you're doing good, and then all of a sudden you have a flashback or something and you're reminded you're swept off your feet and you're reminded I, I still have PTSD. Right. Right. I mean, naturally. So, I mean, it's, I would imagine it unthinkable to, I mean, witness something like that and to be around something like that. And given that that's, you know, the nature of the job is such a terrifying combination. And so, I mean, I also think it's very natural that, you know, and that, that, it, that something like that, would really be difficult to put into that box and to compartmentalize. And so, I mean, I, I hear from you, this was kind of like, this was the, this was the moment that I guess something, something kind of changed for you. Yeah. So I started having uh, nightmares, mm. um, uh, horrible nightmares. And uh, to the point I didn't want to sleep mm. And because I lived alone at the time I was divorced and um you know, the worst time for a first responder, even if they don't have PTSD, is probably at night when they're alone with their thoughts. And I always say that's when the demons come. And to this day, I feel I have it under control pretty good. Mm. Um, But to this day, the nights are still the worst for me. I still have nightmares. I never get a full night's sleep because I'll wake up and I'll have to ground myself. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I take, uh, I take medications for nightmares and stuff, but it, 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 uh, I think it helps, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I appreciate that perspective. I mean, that, that moment of kind of being by yourself at night, it sounds like that's the moment where there are no distractions and it's kind of just, just you and your mind. Yeah. You know, the time I slept the best was when I was at the station. Mm. (laughs) I think because I felt safe Mm -hmm. because I was among other first responders who were looking out for me so I could relax and sleep. And, and there was distractions, you know, you had to have your, in the mindset, I'm ready to go. Mm-hmm. You know, but 
I feel the public takes our all first responders for granted because mm. we see horrific things and we're having a normal reaction mm -hmm. because we're not meant to see those things. Mm. And uh, I just, I kind of forgot where I was going with that, but they, uh, so, it, you know, EMS, police, fire, it's not like you just have one call a day. Right. And then you guys sit around and talk about it. And you're like, you, you, you know, most of the calls are routine. Mm -hmm. But there are days where you have bad calls in a row and you're dropping off and you're on your way to the next one and it's another bad call and there's just no time to process, mm. you know, and you, you're just trying to put it in the back of your head and move on to the next one. Cause you, you know, you're in, and then you have this mm. mentality that, well, I'm, I'm a rescuer. Mm. Uh, you know, that's my job and I should be above this. And then when I got, when I developed PTSD, I didn't know what it was. Mm. I didn't know I had it. I thought I was losing my mind um, because you don't uh, and you're afraid to tell anybody because you don't want them, you know, the stigma. I didn't want to tell my coworkers and uh, I didn't want to tell my family because I didn't want them to worry. So you, you wind up isolating was my go-to was the biggest thing was isolating. And I started drinking a lot and, uh, uh, I would stay awake uh, to the point where I was sleep deprived and I was having audible hallucinations. Mm. I knew they weren't there or weren't real, but I was like, also knew that I shouldn't be hearing them. <laughs> right, right. Oh, so, I mean, I can definitely see how, I mean, when you're feeling sleep deprived, you're going through all of this, you're having nightmares, you know, and you're dealing with all of this on your own. I can see how somebody can get to the conclusion that I feel like I'm losing my mind right now. Yeah. So I, I, uh, actually I tried to commit suicide, uh, and, uh, my boss found me, he broke into my house. He broke a window. He, he suspected, and he broke a window, gained access to the house and called for one of the units. And I went to a mental health facility for, I think it was 14 days. But there they uh, diagnosed me with PTSD. And I can't tell you what it, it was like a relief. Hmm. Because it's like, well, there's a name to what I have. Right. I'm not losing my mind. And it, it's treatable, you know. We, we can work with this. I can work with this. Hmm. But it was the lowest low and I felt like I was the only one in the world going through it. Mm. And uh, so I quit my job because I knew that I needed to help myself before I could help others. Right. And uh, so I moved to South Dakota to be with my siblings why I got therapy and I took intensive uh, CBT therapy and um, got started on medications. And, but I just felt so empty, hollow, mm -hmm. worthless. And, uh, and I kept saying to myself, I just want to be the old me. Mm -hmm. And it, I went through the VA mm -hmm. and this lady that I had, and I wish I could find her, they go by a book and it's for PTSD for combat veterans. She right in front of me, like was ripping pages out, writing paragraphs. And she redid the whole book just wow. to, to fit me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, she saved my life. But, um, one day I woke up and I said, you know, I just kept pressing on. I was like, it's got to get better because it surely can't get any worse. And uh, one day I woke up and I said, you know, I don't want to be the old me. I like the new me. Yeah. Because 
when you lose your job, when you quit or lose it and get fired or whatever, move on, mm. that's your identity. Right. Um, it's who you are. And, and you're like, there, you tell yourself there's nothing else I can do, which is so untrue. Mm. Uh, being a first responder prepares you for many opportunities, job opportunities, but it's just the mindset we have, you know, mm. the, the, uh, you know, the CBT, the distorted thoughts that we have. And mm. um, so uh, I, it just got better and better. You know, I, I never thought anybody would ever love me again. You know, who would love me? I don't even love myself. I, mm. You know, and I met my wife and uh, I always said I was going to do something for first responders because I didn't want him to feel like I did when I was going through it right. all alone. Cause the biggest turning point for me that got me thinking that was after I got out of the hospital, I went back to the ambulance station to go to work. Mm -hmm. And I had this diagnosis is PTSD. There were medics who have been there for years, been doing it forever that would come to me in private and start talking to me and breaking down crying and telling me these stories. And I thought, Oh my gosh, how many of us are suffering in silence? Because right. I never would have thought in a million years, these guys were struggling. Mm. And so I realized I'm not alone. There's right. definitely a lot of us out there suffering in silence. Mm. So I started the group, uh, uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I started a page called uh, PTSD and paramedics, EMTs and first responders. And that took off, but I want something more personal. So I started project hope EMS and uh, it's a group. And uh, that way people could interact with each other. Mm -hmm. And um, cause on pages, it's very just post you make remarks, but groups are more personal. Yeah. And I remember when I had like 250 members, I would go through each member and message them. How are you doing today? Mm. And talk to them just to get people to interact and start talking. And, you know, that was what, seven years ago, you know, today we have over with the groups and the, pages over 40,000 followers in over 50 wow. different countries. You know, I've talked to people in distress in uh, Africa, Egypt, uh, all over the world. It, it's just amazing. And um, I did it all right here in the basement on my little computer, but I've always had volunteer staff who have PTSD, but are, have gotten treatment and are doing good. And they also have background like in SISM, mm -hmm. uh, things like that. Um, we're not therapists. Mm -hmm. We are a peer support group. Right. And, and so that's what, what we do. And it's pretty much an autopilot now. I, you know, I talk to people when I have time and then I have volunteer staff that talk to people and, and, it's been a good thing. Yeah, it sounds like an amazing thing. I mean, you are actively working against a, a stigma and you're actively facilitating the conversation between 40,000 people. I mean, how does it, coming from the perspective that you come from and what you've been through, what does it mean to you to be able to see where the group is right now? I just, I'm so humbled every time. Uh, it's just when I first, cause I went on the internet to look for help and there wasn't any, I think code green was the only organization out there at the time. Mm. So when I started out, it was, it was a fairly new concept and I've helped others uh, would come to me and say, I want to start a group for first responders. Mm. But, and so I helped them. And, uh, you know, some people are 
don't want to do that because they're territorial. But I look at it as a group or a organization is like a church. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all preaching the same thing, mm-hmm. but somebody likes this church better because they feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. So if I can help people grow an organization, you know, and I've done that several times, um, I have no problem with that mm-hmm. because I can't do it on my own. Right. You know, right. <laughs> right. yeah, you know 40,000 is not that many people. It really isn't. And, and I know that's in other countries, but I did the math one time a long time ago and I figured based on the statistics from the numbers I come up with, there was over 500,000 first responders who probably had PTSD, either diagnosed or undiagnosed. Right. That's a lot, It is, you know, compared to 40,000. It's like, we're just scratching the surface. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So. And, and it is, it does seem to be such a massive problem. I mean, just again, given the nature of the job that you do, there is so much that you're exposed to. I mean, it, to be a first responder is to, in a sense, live a totally different experience, a totally different life than a civilian. Like, you know, we pass by a fire or a car accident, what have you, and it's like, what an inconvenience. Like, I need to get to work, you know. But for somebody right. who's there dealing with that, and that might be, like you said, like the fourth, the fifth thing that they've done that day. I mean, that is such a just even trying to put myself in that mindset, it's, it's such a different, a different way of life. It really is. Uh, and it's hard on families. It's mm-hmm. hard on marriages. I, I have missed so many holidays, birthdays, mm-hmm. recitals, and thought nothing of it because that's the job, you know? But, uh, you know, in the family was always like, well, that's the sacrifice he makes for, mm-hmm. but, it uh, it is a rough way of life. Absolutely, and with that part of you, because I mean, I imagine you know you get into a profession like this wanting to help. I, I'd imagine like there's there's something in you that you know you want to serve as you did in the Navy, and you want to continue that that kind of service. How did that part of you battle against the part of you that was really having a hard time? You know, the part of you that said, I had to remain steadfast, I had to keep helping. And then the part of you that was saying, there's something really, really wrong going on. Well, so I found myself getting annoyed with patients Mm. in scenarios. And I was like, this isn't right. This isn't, this isn't how it's supposed to be. How, you know, this isn't helping them. And uh, so that was kind of a red flag for me that, uh, you know, even like on simple calls, it's like, well, you, you should always be empathetic and mm. not annoyed and stuff. But I, I just was, and I became numb. There was no rush anymore. Mm. And especially like on really bad calls. And I was like, something's wrong. I'm not feeling anything. Right. And that I knew that was uh, an issue. So mm, I hear you. And I mean, I think that's a really important signal for people in helping professions to be able to notice for sure that the burnout has occurred. I'm numb to this. It's just, it's a day to day thing at this point. Um, which yeah. I mean, it's, I, I can imagine that, you know, being somebody who wants to help, it can be. It can hurt in a sense to to get to that point where it is just where you already be you do become numb to it and you do start getting annoyed, um, and it's it's got to be difficult to overcome that to getting to the point of like okay like I I can't continue to do this you know I, I something something needs to kind of give at some point, um, so and I mean. In talking about just the culture of first responders, you know, I, I know you, you work with EMT primarily. Um, I mean, how do people talk about this? Like if you're, you, you go to a call, then you get in the ambulance, you go back to the station, whatever, like what, how, how do people talk about the job? Uh, well, honestly, uh, dark humor sure. is uh, a way that it would be, it became real uncomfortable if somebody got emotional and started to talk about something. Mm. And I think the reason is because 
we should have, we knew that we should be feeling the same thing. Mm -hmm. And, but we put these walls up mm -hmm. and, and there was, you know, I'm sure I was part of the stigma, just as bad as other people, sure. you know, like, well, maybe you need to go do something else if you can't handle it or, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Right. Um, there's just not enough like debriefings. I'm sure you heard of those. Like after a bad call, they have a debriefing mm. out of 14 years. I've been to one debriefing. Wow. It is it that I only been to one bad call or are we not taking care of our first responders? Right. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> and I mean, in thinking about things that kind of need to change, it does sound like, you know, things like debriefing is something that can be different. The culture of like, hey, like we can talk about this, you know, we can have a difficult time with this um, and still, you know, continue to, to do things. I mean, it seems like there are some things that can change. Um, but I guess I wonder from from your perspective as somebody who's been inside of it, what do you imagine might be able to to change? I think the peer support program, you know, like you watch on TV, I joke about it, like the guy who said, yeah, somebody, I had the idea, but Google came up with it mm -hmm. and stole it from me. Well, when I was going through it, I thought we should have like a peer support program where, where we could go to a peer. And then all of a sudden they were coming out and I was like, you know, they stole my idea, <laughs> but um it's good idea because management has to put that in place mm. and that's sending the signal that management's on board with this, that it's right. okay to not be okay. Right. And um, I think that should be in place in every first responder, uh, in every fire station, every police station, every, um, you know, ambulance station, because it sends a signal and, you know, it would help so much to fuse situations instead of people letting it build up. Right. It, you know, and along with that, they can, they can have training like on good coping skills. Right. And how to uh, handle certain situations and identify people who need further help mm. through, you know, therapy or psychiatry or something like that. Or maybe, you know, uh, don't make them afraid to come forward mm. and work because they're going to lose their job or they're going to be an outcast. And, right. But I really think the peer support program, and I know it's popped up in a lot of places. I think that's an awesome program. I think mm -hmm. that it should be, it should be legislated where it's uh, a uh, requirement. Mm. Yeah. I agree with you. I mean, I, I think that there definitely has to be something done again, like, like you said, in management at the, at the top level, you know, legislatively to really begin to set that norm. Because I imagine that if you are just one EMT, one firefighter, one police officer, it's difficult for you to say, I'm going to take on the burden of breaking the stigma myself and then advocating for this and kind of outing yourself as like, you know, I'm really going through this and I need some more, some more support. But there are people who do that. Absolutely. And they win over management and they get the ball rolling and stuff. You know, I know a guy uh, here in uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, firefighter, awesome guy. Mm -hmm. And he has done that That's in the amazing. fire stations. Uh, uh, yeah. It, you just meet all sorts of amazing people who yeah. are doing amazing things, but there's still so much work to be done. I really feel the government needs to be more involved. You know, uh, they always make promises uh, when it comes to mental health. And sure. I, 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 as far as COVID goes, I think the, what, in my humble opinion, one of the good things that come out of COVID is uh, there is a cry for more mental health help. Yes. Cause look at all of our nurses right. who have PTSD now from going through all that, right. you know, and you know, I work at a mental health facility and we're full. Mm. all the time and got okay. people waiting to get in and uh we're a large facility and it's uh it's sad it is it is but i think there's a shift i want to believe there is yeah i i believe that there is as well um 
one of the things that I noticed, because I mean, I'm, I'm a therapist and like, um, I work a lot with like adolescents. And so I'm in the schools a lot. And a lot of schools nowadays, they have like a wellfulness, you know, break, you know, at some point, they stop and they do all this kind of stuff. And like the elementary schools, they have signs everywhere of like the zones of regulation, like, here's how you can detect what you're feeling. They've got like hmm. yoga, like there, there really is this big push, I think, you know, where the hiccup is, I, I'm not entirely sure whether it's just that the personnel are not available, whether we are not putting enough resources into these different, um, into these different places, you know, into schools, into um, the the public services, you know, like first responders. Uh, I'm not sure where the hang up is. is but I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think I definitely see that shift coming. And I would have to agree. It, it's probably, I think COVID really shined a light on something that was already going on. But it just really revealed the truth of everything. And I think it, it yeah. made a lot more people aware of what was going on. So one of the things that I think is really amazing about the, I mean, about the group that, that you have founded, that you have, that you've started up, as well as, you know, the advocacy that you have for peer support as well. One of the greatest predictors for the, um, one of the greatest predictors for the symptom severity of PTSD is the size of somebody's perceived social network that the less people somebody have in that somebody has in that network, the more severe the symptoms, the more people that they feel that they have in that system, the lower the PTSD symptom severity. It's one of the best predictors we've got, one of the best resiliency factors we've got. And so I think that what you're doing is <clears throat> such an amazing precedent to set, such an amazing tool for people to have. And I guess I, I wonder for from your perspective and just within these groups, what does it, I guess, look like for people to begin interacting, to begin supporting one another? Like, what does that, what does that look like? Well, you know, the biggest thing I hear is uh, like a new member will say, I thought I was the only one, mm. which is since chills now me because that's what I always thought. I thought I was the only one going right. through it. And the neat thing that uh, Facebook has added is live chats. Okay. So they can talk to each other live. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we got like four different chat rooms and then we, have, we monitor them for, uh, you know, certain mm -hmm. things that shouldn't be going on. But uh, yeah, they just like, they're building relationships and they're, uh, uh, they're seeing that they're not the only one going through it and oh wow they have the same thing that they're going through and and uh and then we have people who like just had a bad day and they just want to vent right and and then uh so then we'll get a staff member on with them to talk to them so we can also decipher if they need more than just someone to vent to mm -hmm. and then we can uh try to steer that in that direction but yeah, it's, uh, you know, when they first come out of the chat rooms, since I'm older, I was like, oh, great, something else, elect you know, <laughs> electronic <laughs> to deal with. And, and uh, but I was like, this is really cool. You know, everybody's talking to each other and um, in real time. And, and uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think uh, the group gives, and it's a closed group. Right. So it gives them, they feel like it's a safe place for them to talk. Mm. Because if it was an open group where anybody could join, like other people from the department who don't have PTSD, they could right. say so-and-so was on here talking about. So we, uh, we monitor that and, you know, and uh, they just feel like it's a safe place and, they can talk about it. Mm. Yeah. And it's amazing that they have that resource. It's, it's, it's so terrible that it even has to be that people have to be afraid to talk about it. Isn't it? Yeah, you know, terrible. I, uh, I used to be ashamed of it. Right. And, and, uh, almost felt guilty. Hmm. And, uh, but I just come to the point where I said, you know, uh, yes, I have PTSD. It is a part of me, but it's not who I am. 
Mm. I don't let it define me. I have, and because I've done that, I have more good days than I have bad days. Mm. I still have flashbacks. I still have anxiety. I have all that, but I feel like I'm in control. Right. And it's not. And, uh, Although there are times I feel like it is in control, but sure. but I just feel like because there's it's like a journey, you know, and at some point in the journey in the beginning, we just kind of and I think it's out of fear mm-hmm. and uh, we just waller in it. Mm-hmm. I have PTSD. That's all I'll ever be. That's all you know. I don't. Mm-hmm. I can't do anything about it. And and people are. You know, I, I was terrified to go to therapy because mm-hmm. I knew we were going to talk about things I didn't want to talk about. Right. You know, we were going to be ripping band-aids off old wounds and, mm-hmm. uh, but it was hard work, right. but it was so worth it. It was so worth it. I would do it again because yeah. it is, uh, yeah, it's what you need to do in medications. And, and I feel uh, they go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a picture of a brain walking a tightrope, holding a balance beam. Mm-hmm. And I picture the, you know, my medications are on this side and wow. therapies on this side and it balances me on the tightrope. Yeah. And, uh, uh, so I just, I see so many people who are afraid to go to therapy, but you can't make somebody get help, but eventually you get tired of being afraid. You get tired of living like that. And, and you're, you get ready and then you're ready to take the step Mm. to get the help and to move on. And I just hope that I inspire people to get help. Yeah. uh, Because you can have a normal life you know, define normal. That's the other thing is uh, I had to learn to embrace the new normal. Mm-hmm. I always felt this isn't normal. This isn't normal to take meds. This isn't normal to go to therapy. This isn't normal to have flashbacks. Mm-hmm. And I had to tell myself, what is normal? Right. You know, what's normal in Egypt is not normal in, uh, I don't know, Ethiopia, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you have to learn to embrace the new normal. Right. And for me, the new normal is having PTSD mm-hmm. and coping with it and living my life. It, it's just like somebody gets diagnosed with uh, diabetes. Right. All of a sudden. Well, they probably feel like the world's crashing down and, oh, my gosh, I got this diabetes. And no, it's the new normal. Right. You, you, you press on, you live life and you do what you have to do to cope with what you got. Right. That's kind of the attitude of adopted. And yeah. And I mean, and to go along with your analogy, you know, it, if you have diabetes, but you just ignore the diabetes and you say, no, I don't have diabetes. I don't have it. I don't have it. The diabetes continues to stick around and it can, you know, even get worse as we continue to try to behave as if everything is still the way that it used to be. Yeah. <laughs> Denial is not a good thing when it comes to some things. You right. Know. And at well, the same and, time, it's natural, I, I think, to, to want to deny that because it's a, I mean, that's, that's hard to come to terms with. It is. But, but you know, like diabetes is no different than PTSD. Mm-hmm. But, you know, mental health and, and it's because uh, everybody, not everybody, uh, some people attribute mental health issues as being crazy right we're not all there that's not the case you know we're we're showing through imaging and stuff that how things like trauma affects the brain in certain parts of the brain and that's part of your body you know Mm -hmm. that runs your body right so it's the most complicated part of your body it it can get damaged too and it needs to be fixed or repaired or mm-hmm. taken care of. And uh, I just don't see how we, it's funny now because I'm looking at it from a different way, but it's frustrating right. that we stigmatize mental health. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And I mean, to, to go off of what you're talking about, like, you know, that that's how I bring it to a lot of my clients a lot of the time, because they can have a difficult time accepting that they're in therapy. And they, you know, there are, there are so many times where somebody says to me, like, I must be like the craziest person you've ever talked to. And it's like, right. no, no, you like, because I mean, to, I mean, the, the brain does fundamentally change with PTSD. Their wires get switched. Wires go in a bunch of different ways. And in fact, the development of PTSD is so incredibly normal, given that people are in extraordinary circumstances. Like if you are exposed to trauma, if you're exposed to these extraordinary circumstances time and time again, it is very natural that your brain is going to change to adapt to that, that you are going to change in order to adapt to that so that your brain can keep you safe. What would be yeah. abnormal is if you were going through all of that and then, you know, just nothing happened. Like it, it's far more common for people to have some kind of a, a, a difference, some kind of a change as a result of that. Yeah. That's a normal reaction. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, we, we, we've got to find a way to be able to, to be able to continue to survive. And the adaptations that come with PTSD are all, our brain trying its best to help us to survive, you know, the hypervigilance that can come that keeps us on edge, ready for danger. That is us adapting to the presence of danger all the time. Um, right. You know, us shutting down, numbing out, totally dissociating. That is very adaptive if you are exposed to trauma all the time. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do hope that people can understand how normal it is. But so if, if you were to be able to talk to somebody now who was teetering on the edge of wanting to go to therapy, but there's just something really hanging them up on it, what do you feel like you would want that person to hear? That, you know, I think, uh, you know, look at me. Mm. I'm, I'm evidence that it works. Mm. I'm not perfect. I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, but I, I'm living my life and you're, you know, if you want to live your life, you gotta be, you gotta, you gotta take some steps. And like you're saying, you know, the biggest thing is acceptance. Mm. You know, I had such a hard time, you know, I didn't, it just kind of hit me now that you said that I didn't accept my diagnosis, my situation. Uh, I thought it was the end, mm. but it's not the end. But you know, uh, that's where you we need help. We need uh, we need support groups to see we're not the only ones going through it. You know, anytime I run into somebody, I uh, I tell them, hey, I have this group. You should join the group. Don't listen to me. Mm -hmm. Listen to them. Right. They're just like you and me, and they're going through the same thing. And I guess that's uh, just basically try to bring people to the masses to see, hey, this is okay to be not okay and that I'm not the only one going through it. And look at what getting help has done for these guys. And mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I can appreciate that perspective wholeheartedly. Um, and so, I mean, we – we can understand that, you know, seeking that help and having those support systems, having our peers around, it, it can be so helpful. And I guess I wonder from like, from your perspective, what do you feel like can push people further into isolation? Like I know you mentioned that that was kind of where you had ended up. Like you had isolated and you, you know, worked through it through like through self-medication with alcohol, a very, very common thing that people do. What do you feel like goes into you know, us pulling further away from people, isolating further. Well, I mean, it's easier to shut down when you're depressed and you have all this. I think we feel like it's easier to shut down, sort of like the check engine light on your car. Right. If, if we ignore it, maybe the car will fix itself mm -hmm. and it'll go away. And it doesn't. And it only gets worse. It's the same thing, you know, I isolate but the problems are still there. And then self-medicating is the worst thing you can do because then now not only do you have PTSD, but you're having addiction. Right. And, uh, and, and I, through my research, I found that self-medicating actually sets you further back than if you just would have went and got help to begin with. 
Um, yeah, I uh, kind of forgot the question. Yeah, you're all good. You're all good. Uh, so, um, I mean, first of all, you, know, you 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 continue to bring up amazing analogies. You're very good at that. Um, but uh, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. You know that the self medication it is very soothing and it's very very effective in the short term. But yeah, long term, it now it's another thing that I have to tackle. So it's understandable why people do it. But it's yeah, it can it can make things far, far worse. But yeah, the, the, the question was about, you know, why people may isolate instead of reaching out instead of pursuing that help. Well, I think depression plays into a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it did for me. And then and then the isolating was because I didn't know what was going on and I was afraid and I felt like I had no one to talk to about it uh, to help me figure out, you know, you know, it's amazing. Like my wife, I'll talk to her about something that's bothering me and she'll tell me exactly what I already know. And it's like, well, I knew that you didn't tell me anything. I knew, I knew that. (laughs) (laughs) Man. So, so you've reached this point now where I know you've, you've gone to therapy and it, it sounds like cognitive behavioral therapy was the one you, you specifically had worked through. Yes. Okay. Wonderful. And what was that process like? If I'm, if I may ask. It, it was hard. Sure. Cause we tore down specific calls that bothered me the most mm. and went through them and what my thought process was and talked about the different, uh, you know, I teach uh, CBT now. Mm-hmm. So it's, it wasn't like that. You know, the 14, we, we go with 14 distorted thoughts and we, uh, you know, talk about each one. She basically would talk about, like, I would write down how I felt at this point and this point. And then she would dive into it and say, well, what, what do you think about this? Or, and then she would talk about uh, my thought process and, mm-hmm. and things like that. And it's been so long. Mm-hmm. It's been like six years ago. Wow. Yeah. Oh. Man, so what's it like, I guess, being the, 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 the new you? How do you, you know, how do you, I guess, I don't know. I mean, what, what is it that, I guess, gives you the meaning nowadays? You know, what is, I, I, I mean, I know you're, you're a behavioral health tech now. Um, so what, what are things like for you nowadays? So, like, life feels good. Um, I, uh, you know, I golf, I, uh, go out with friends, I do things, but I have bad days, Sure. you know, like where I'll isolate and I don't feel like talking to anybody or, and, uh, but I have an awesome wife who keeps me grounded and, uh, keeps me in check and, and she's, She's she's way smarter than I am, but I won't. We, we won't tell I don't her. Want, I don't want her to hear me, but um, but uh, yeah. And like I said, and I'll have a flashback, and she's like, "Great, she's awesome." You know, she'll talk me through it and stuff. And um, they don't happen that often, but man, when they do, it's like, "Oh, where did that come from?" You know. And, but uh, um, life is good. And it just, you know, I just, you know, I'm so glad that I didn't or I wasn't successful at killing myself because I would have missed out on so much, Mm. you know, and I have like uh, my granddaughter, she's like the light of my life. She's five years old, you know, Uh, she calls me Ponka. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, that's how it came out when she tried to say grandpa or papa was Ponka. So now all the grandkids call me Punka, but, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, we all go through hard times, but it's not the end of the world. Mm. You just, you gotta, you gotta live life. Mm. And no matter, you know, I see there are people who have lived by the simplest means and they're, you know, in other countries and they're so poor and, but they're the happiest in the world Absolutely, because they're living life, mm-hmm. you know, and we have so much that we take for granted. Yes. 
unless your wife reminds you that you're yeah. taking it. <laughs> and that's that's what we got. We we yeah, we have to have that uh th- those accountability yeah. partners. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I that I, I try to remind people because I mean, I worked with people with trauma. I work with people with addiction, and it's so important for people to be able to remember that even if you you know you have a bad day or you have a relapse, you have a flashback, you know you lose your temper, you know, and you've dissociated, whatever it might be, it's so important for people to be able to remember that that doesn't restart the process. Like you're not back at square one, you know, and I know a lot of people can internalize it as like, oh my, I have to start all over like this. I can't believe that I'm not over this. And it is so important for people to be able to remember that it's, you know, like you, like you have said, it's the new me. Like it happens sometimes I can accept that. I can work through it. I can cope with it, and it can it, it can continue to I can continue to move forward with it. Um, mm-hmm. And in line with that, I guess the the last question I have for you today is: I, I guess what do you continue to do to take care of yourself? You know, to do that self care to you know, yeah, to just keep caring about yourself. Um, I started doing mindfulness, yes, uh, like uh, meditating, and I've found it to be really relaxing and uh i don't know you just kind of feel feel better about yourself mm-hmm. and uh and then i do hobbies uh, i do electronics see the flashing lights and stuff i build those as a hobby uh, you know sometimes i'll be stressed out and i'll tell my wife i just gotta solder something you know <laughs> uh-huh. but uh and then relationships and, uh, you know, friendships mm-hmm. and be there for other people, not get hung up on just helping people, not yourself, but it helps. It reminds me that you're not the only one who is going through stuff. Other people are too. And so, mm-hmm. and then, uh, and then just appreciate the, a, a dog, I have two dogs and they're just so amazing. They like can sense your energy and your, when you're down and stuff. Uh, They help a lot. Yeah. They're not service dogs or emotional support dogs. They just, they know their job. So (laughs) they do it. (laughs) Yeah. Dogs are amazing companions. The, I mean, um, what was the word for it? the uh i guess it's like un unquestioning love I, I can't remember what it what it is um like there's there's no condition the unconditional love there we go unconditional uh, love, yeah that that can come from dogs they are amazing companions um but yeah all of that sounds really amazing and honestly i think in my conversation with you it has really helped me to kind of put more things into perspective and to be able to recognize that there are probably a lot of things that are passing me by that i'm not appreciating very much um you know, and I think it's, it is really important for all of us to be able to take that moment and be able to, you know, enjoy life while it's still here and enjoy all these things while they're still here. And just to, you know, have, have those small moments for ourselves. Um, so I, I do very much appreciate you bringing me that. And I appreciate that you've come and you've shared so much of yourself with us and you've talked with us. And I'm really hoping that some people out there really get something from this conversation as well. Um, so last thing I'll ask you, um, so what, uh, how, how can people find the group? How can people, um, yeah, and then just, I mean, outside of that, anything that you would like to plug in general? Well, I, uh, so the group, if you go to Facebook and just type in uh, Project Hope EMS, and then uh, there is a page called uh, PTSD and Paramedics, EMTs and First Responders. And then I started a TikTok, mm-hmm. which is how we met, mm-hmm. uh, kind of on a whim. And it's an amazing platform to uh, to meet people. I, I'm surprised how many followers I have. All my, the young kids I work with are like, oh, you're TikTok. Famous. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. No, I'm not. <laughs> the kids love that stuff. Oh. But all I do is post memes uh, with messages about PTSD and first responders. And um, it's just amazing. Like I'll, I'll get responses like you have no idea how much these help me or uh, yeah, the things like that. It's, it's good to hear 
that they are helped. And then that brings people to the group uh, through that, mm -hmm. the TikToks also. And then I'm on Instagram, but that hasn't really, mm -hmm. I don't really understand Instagram. And I definitely don't understand uh, what's that uh, Twitter. Oh yeah, <laughs> I've had. I don't those. get. I don't get Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I, I like just TikTok and YouTube. I get that. I'll I'll stick there. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Well, Ken. Again, thank you so much for coming and sharing so much with us. Um, you are an amazing dude, and I really appreciate everything that you do, everything that you've continued to done, continue to do, all the things you've done to I me. Mean, it's just. Yeah, I, I really appreciate all of that. Um, and it sounds like you have a lot of other people out here who really appreciate you. So thank you so much for, for everything. Sure. And thank you for having me on. And it was really nice meeting you face to face. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's, it's a pleasure. So I, I, I hopefully we can continue to talk here in the future. Uh, oh, definitely. <laughs> but uh, so thank you also to everybody who is either listening live here on YouTube or you are listening to the podcast later on. Um, again, my name is Rob. This is the Please Stay Inside podcast. So take care of yourselves and we will talk again next time.